Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, my guest on today's show is Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and logopedics from the University of Cape Town and the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Since the early 1980s, Dr. Leaf has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. She was one of the first in her field to study neuroplasticity, how the brain can change with directed mind management and develop new neural networks. During her years in clinical practice and her work with underprivileged students in South Africa, Dr. Leaf developed the geodesic information processing theory of how we think, build memory, and learn. And subsequently, she has created practical guides and tools that have transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people suffering from traumatic brain injury, learning disabilities such as ADD and ADHD, autism, dementia, and mental health issues like anxiety and depression. Dr. Leaf recently published her new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, which outlines the NeuroCycle, a scientifically researched five-step process to help people take back control of their thoughts and their lives. Now, Caroline and I probe myriad topics. We discuss the difference and the relationship between the mind and the brain. We explore the concept of neuroplasticity, how the brain develops habits and how new neural networks are created. We talk about how trauma impacts the brain and how it can result in chronic stress and toxic thinking that affects both psychological and physiological well-being. And Dr. Leaf outlines the principles and steps for reframing trauma, building new habits, and living a healthier life. This was a fascinating conversation and one that I wish could have extended, so consider it part one. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Caroline Leaf. (music) 
Okay, Dr. Caroline Leaf, welcome to the Commune Podcast. So good to be with Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, so there is so much terrain uh, that I want to cover with you, and it's just been a delight uh, to become more familiar with your work and to read your book, most recent book, uh, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, um, which I've done over the last week. And, um, you know, specifically, I hope you can shepherd us through the techniques that you've developed that we can apply to our lives to address toxic thinking, anxiety, and stress, and how mind management can can bring our lives into a greater sense of well-being um, and, and how we can do this through developing new neural networks, um, which is something I know that you talk about. But before... Um, it was a good summary. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> but before diving um, straight into to the neurocycle method, which I've tried to apply in a number of, uh, of my own uh, kind of traumatic experiences and stresses, um, I'd like to zoom out for a second first. And, and given the, the reality that the overwhelming majority of our experience of reality largely occurs as our as the product of our mind, as the product of being conscious. Um, and because of that, I'd love to, to spend a moment maybe examining the nature of the mind more broadly and, and its differentiation and, I suppose, relationship to the brain, because they are concomitant, but they often get used incorrectly, interchangeably. So yeah. perhaps we can start there. What is the mind and how is it different from and I suppose in relationship with the brain? Very good question. And it's a very good question. And people always think that the mind is such a philosophical thing. And, and I want to say up front that the mind is one of the easiest things to understand, but it's one of the most difficult things. It's been made one of the most difficult things to study in science. So it's, it's had probably one of the least amounts of attention. Yet, if you want to understand what mind is, just think of what you're doing right at this moment. At this moment, you're using your mind to ask me questions. The listeners and viewers are listening. They're using their mind to process what we're discussing. So mind is essentially our ability to experience life. And if you get more technical, uh, the difference, or it, even let's, before we get more technical, let's just talk about another very basic difference. If you and I were, if someone in this between, let's say I had a dead person in the room here with me, which I don't, but if I did, they wouldn't be able to respond because they don't have a mind. So the difference between, well, the mind's not working anymore. Uh, where it goes, we don't know yet. At, at this stage in science, we don't understand what happens when someone dies, but we do know when someone dies that they weigh less. There's a fraction change almost immediately as the mind basically goes wherever the mind goes. And that's a huge philosophical discussion. But essentially, the mind is our aliveness. And our aliveness is our ability to experience life. And we're using our mind all the time to understand this experiencing of experiencing life. And we're using our mind to understand how the world works and how things work and, and, and just how a relationship works. We're using our mind just to be alive. We're using our mind to wake up in the morning, get dressed, go to work do our workouts, have a discussion, um, go to a meeting. You're using your mind when you go to sleep at night. And as I say in the book, the, the, you can go three weeks without food. You can go three days without water. You can go three minutes without oxygen, but you don't even go three seconds without your mind working. So that's kind of the sort of philosophical thing where mind is. And mind, we can look in deeper at the different levels of mind, um, consciousness, non-conscious, subconscious, unconscious, because there's quite a lot of debate over that. And I've spent like 38 years studying it. 
Um, and uh, even then, you know, you still there's this, we're going to keep science is always writing new stories. Um, but essentially, we, we on a physics level, the mind is an energetic force, it's an energy force. And more specifically, it's a gravitational field with electromagnetic properties. And um, basically, if, it's, if you take a white piece of paper, and you put a pile of iron filings on that piece of paper, and you put a magnet in the middle, the iron filings will arrange themselves like, almost like a spider web, and that's an electromagnetic field. Now, you can't see the field until you put the magnet there. So if you think of it like this, the, the magnet is the brain. So you can't see anything happening until we have the, that, the, that mind is in existence, whatever. With the, with the mind hitting the brain, the fields are in place. The iron filings arrange themselves. In other words, we experience our mind in the brain and the body. So the mind needs the brain and the body in order to be experienced and in order for you to be you and for me to be me. You need your brain and body and I need my brain and body in order to experience my mind. We, we can get quite specific, and this is fairly new research where people are understanding that besides the gravitational fields that we live in, we also have our own unique gravitational fields. And this is not anything woo-woo. It's completely logical stuff because if you do an EKG on someone's heart, you are picking up electromagnetic waves. You're picking up electricity basically in the heart. Same thing in the brain. For our, my neuroscientific research, my team and myself, we use QEEG technology because of the, you know, you can see so much in action in, in the moment and changes as they happen. It's not reading someone's thoughts or thinking or memories. It is basically looking at how the brain is responding as mind hits brain. So mind is this beautiful concept of aliveness that has a physics component, which is all the gravitational fields, electromagnetics, and that stuff. And then it's got the psychological component, which is our ability to think and feel and choose. And, I, and I'm holding up three fingers because mind is thinking, feeling, and choosing. You can't think without choosing. You can't feel without thinking and and choose, feel without thinking and choosing. In other words, the three, <coughs> excuse me, always go together. So when you think, you will feel. When you think and feel, you will choose. And that's what everyone's doing right at the moment. Your mind is thinking, feeling, and choosing at around about somewhere in the region of 400 billion actions per second to process this discussion into the brain. And the brain is literally that, that mysterious connection of energy in the brain stimulates the brain to respond on an electromagnetic and chemical. There's a brain, electromagnetic, chemical, and genetic level. And the words that we are saying, the questions, the discussion, everything are building into little protein thought trees inside of the brain. So that's how we can actually make sense of each other's conversation and how people can remember what we said a fraction of a second ago because we actually build it into the brain as a short-term memory which over time becomes long-term if you do something with it if it doesn't it just denatures and that's pretty much neuroplasticity mind brain i mean i've said a million things in that one answer which we can unpack if you'd like no so thank you so one of the ways that i have thought about the mind and 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 the brain and perhaps you can sort of dispel this mythology or, or gird it into some, in some scientific reality, is that the, in the Cartesian world, I think the, the mind had been given some degree of substance, of material. But now I think we generally accept that it, it, it doesn't seem to have any, um, any matter to it if you will, and that it seems to be more of a, a faculty or a, a process or a capacity to 
uh, as the experiencer of phenomena arising moment to moment in consciousness. So that there are sensations, emotions, thoughts, feelings that appear um, within this space of the mind that then we can perceive uh, and then process and, and, and turn into thoughts. But that, but then the differentiation there between the brain is the brain is actually something of material, uh, of neurons and dendrites and axons and synapses and a bunch of other words that I don't really completely understand, <laughs> um, um, but just a bit. And, um, and, and so there is this dichotomy, uh, if you will, between the brain as matter as um, I say, I, I suppose sort of the a, the central governing agent of the systems of our body, you know, respiratory, digestive, pulmonary, etc., um, and the mind really as more of the experiencer of reality. Is that a fair understanding? Yes, I think you've understood that really well. And, you know, we, we, what we need to do is understand with modern science, when we define um, physical, it's something you can see, see touch, and, and hear, and feel, see, touch, and feel. And that's classical physics. And classical physics is only a part of everything. And that's why we have to draw on quantum physics, which is a, with classical physics. So when you bring in quantum physics and classical physics, and you look at that as a whole system, what you will see is um, you're going to have a much more complete picture. So the modern scientific sort of approach is to be working more with the classical and that's where we've got to that point of saying the mind is the brain which it's not or the mind produces the brain which it can't because if a dead if it was the case then a dead brain could produce mind which it can't do so it's a very logical logical deduction the reason that that your brain is changing right at this moment is because you're alive because your mind's actually doing stuff you're, you're able to experience and, and as you spend you're experiencing the phenomena phenomena around you and that's being processed by your mind into your brain so yes your brain is not as if you define physicality in terms of classical physics it doesn't look the same but if you use quantum physics you can start getting a, a, an energetic or, a, or an almost subatomic a quantum understanding of the brain and there's a lot of research around that where they even talk about quantum physics being the science of thought and that the most important thing in quantum physics is the fact that as a human you and I can think feel and choose and we can and that choice then may has an impact just look around us this technology that enables us to talk like this is the result of someone's mind who has actually collapsed that into a thought tree and then taken that and produced that into technology along with other minds so everything around us the painting on the wall the the ability to have clothing on our body all all come from this concept of a human being able to think and feel and choose and use the brain and the body and that magical connection is producing this ability that we have as humans to produce to to connect, to communicate, to create, which is incredibly powerful. And my work goes around understanding that component and not not having such a, it's more like a dualistic kind of thing. It's more like a, a I don't even know if there's a word for it, but it's, it's, it's not seeing them as disconnected. It's seeing them as two separate but inseparable forces and that we've got to understand them as, as, as being different, but 
the mind is you experience the mind with your brain and your body without your brain and your body you can't experience your mind you need your mind your brain and your body to experience your mind but your brain and body can't do anything without the mind and that's the relationship that i see and if i look at the science and i've been analyzing this for years and looking back at even at ancient stuff ancient literature these this this kind of thinking we have that i'm describing now is very ancient and it we now have scientific technology that enables us to explore this in more depth and it's just the most logical thing you know you'd see a lot of the current classical research that says okay the brain produces the mind but if you look at the experiments they've got a human and they've shown them a picture and so they, they haven't just taken their brain they've actually brought an alive human into the lab they've connected them to fmri or whatever technology and they've told them to do something or they've looked at something which is which is an experience yeah. and then they measure the results of the experience then they say oh it was produced by the brain but no not not if not if you <laughs> remove it you see you can't remove experience you know so yeah. these it's a it's an interesting concept but it's yeah yeah yes. i mean we get down into some some you know philosophical wormholes there i mean i have do, seen some of those um kind of massive brain scanners in, in, into which a human can enter for example and hold two switches and uh, you, you know the administrator of the brain scanner can actually um sense or see which switch uh, a subject is going to push before the actual subject actually thinks the thought of pushing it. So then, you know, the logical uh, inference there is that biochemical processes in the brain are actually determining choice and action <laughs> that's um, if you look at it that way they, but right. you can look at it yeah you can look at that completely differently because benjamin yes. Libe, who's one of the famous people back in the 80s who did that research um he talks about that and he said that he, that wasn't how he wanted his research interpreted because right. and the work that i've done shows that the non-conscious mind and the brain are uh, the non-conscious mind working with the brain are away way before the conscious mind the conscious mind always lags behind so you right. can argue that it's a biochemical process or you can argue that you already the whole thing's happening on an unconscious level and then it becomes conscious so you can you can argue it both ways so so i, I know that i know a lot of that work yeah 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 i don't think we'll in the next hour or so come to any to explore uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> necessarily determine whether the mind is just a fortuitous combination of, of atoms in the brain or not but um I, but i am um specifically uh, interested in the notion of trauma and how mm -hmm. the mind and the brain deal with with trauma and understanding the role that each of them play and the relationship that they have um and maybe i'll just ground it in um in some sort of example so we can we can refer to it like and this was something that i was playing with over the last week as i was going through the the program um so i had a traumatic experience when i was a kid when I, I had a bunch of friends and i were just horsing around and i was they locked me in a school locker oh, and it was like, yeah it's not not pleasant at all um and uh it was like you know a very tight little black cold dark encasement uh into which you know i was held I felt like an eternity, of course, but it was probably, Oof. you know, 90 seconds or 120 seconds. In fact, I was in such a state of panic, you know, um, Shame. and we can mm -hmm. go, go into the, um, the, the, the neurobiology of this a, a little bit, and then the trauma that arose from it, and then how it seems to uh, have manifested into my life um, as a consistent stressor, often 
codified by the notion of, of claustrophobia, mm-hmm. um, but also any situation in which I cannot extricate myself, and that can be mm-hmm. very psychological, mm-hmm. I, um, I start to feel those intimations of, uh, of amygdala hijack, for example, you know, sweat and, and increased heart rate and nausea and all of the symptoms that are concomitant with that. So obviously in the moment, uh, the fight or flight um, response, you know, uh, emerging from the amygdala and the cortisol and epinephrine then flowing through my body as a as a um, reflection of my amygdala's um, connection to my endocrine system or whatever. I mean, that was a, a very normal response. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And, and I was like punching the the. Um, the steel door of the locker, et cetera. And then, you know, eventually yeah. I got out and it took me a while to calm down, but, and I, and I eventually did calm down. But what seems to be um, quite abnormal or, or quite, uh, maybe not abnormal, but quite self-defeating is the trauma that I carried forward into my life, despite the fact that realistically, there's no problem getting into an elevator. I'm just going up four floors. But still, <laughs> I experience my mind or, or, it's, or my brain, and, and this is where I kind of want to pass the baton here, is still um, reconnecting to that, um, to that memory, if you will, whether that memory is reconstructed or stored somewhere. And it is then, um, you know, Rethrusting me into the same sort of emotional um, state that I experienced as a child. So maybe you could help me understand what's happening there <laughs> in my mind. Excellent. And my well, yeah. first of all, I'm so sorry you had that experience because that that's really awful. is awful. And yeah. you know, as soon as you were saying that, I thought, oh, this is going to be hard for you to be in an elevator. I'm sure, and you and you mentioned that. So, and yeah. so essentially, what happened there from the? Let me take, take. I'm going to track it back, and I'm going to use props because that'll be the easiest to understand this. So, first of all, there was the experience that was initially enjoyable because you were all horsing around together and having fun together. Then suddenly, you became the butt of their joke, which was not very nice. So, the, but the experience was there. You were all processing that with your mind that was initially fun then as you were put into the lock and forced in there immediately that experience became toxic so now I'm going to hold up a wiry looking tree instead of this green tree so what was initially a lot of fun then suddenly you had your own unique experience which was being locked in the tree in in the locked in the tree locked in the locker so if you look at any kind of if you look at any tree any it's you've always got a root system and you've got branches so i'm going to go with this tree first and then i'll come to the toxic tree any experience like we're having now this discussion or the initial playing around with your friends as it starts, there's a seed, like you plant a seed and then you grow roots. And you, okay, so that same thing happens with the experience. It becomes a physical reality that goes psychoneurobiology, mind, brain, body. So the mm. mind experiences, your mind is first cause. So to process that experience into your brain. So first of all, let's take the fun part. So the thing was, let's have some fun. So the seed, you started doing fun things. So the source was there. The root system is the source. These branches over here, maybe there were five of you. I'm just, I don't know how many there were, but just let's say there were 
were five or six of you. Each of you would have grown, you would have had the same root system because it was the same fun things that you were doing. And but your interpretation of that would have been different for each of you because each of you is unique. So each of you would have perceived that. So the branches are the interpretation of the source. Okay, so this whole thing is a thought. And a thought is made of memories. So memory is not the same as a thought. The thought's the whole concept of the playing around. Like you started off saying you had a trauma of playing around that then turned into you being locked up. So this was a, so the initially was playing around, but then there was a trauma of being locked up. So two separate thoughts were, were basically built, but they connected because they happened at the same, pretty much at the same time. So the thought is the main concept, fun trauma of being locked up but each thought then there's the detail so as you as you spoke about the detail of the trauma the locking up in the in the little um locker then being forced in and locked up and dark and all that all that detail is in the source that's the source the root the origin that was the so how let's lock you up is the seed and then as they locked you up all the experience would have been in there this distorted tree trunk is your 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 mind uh, processing this and the branches are your interpretation of the terrible fear am I going to get out of here I can't breathe and all the the data of I'm locked up I can't get out I'm stuck Um, I'm I'm going to I can't breathe I'm going to and so then all the data of the specifics then got emotions attached to them so we have data memories and we have emotional memories and now now this thing is this what you're looking at here is made of proteins and chemicals and quantum vibrations and all kinds of stuff and it's made in the brain by the mind so as you were being locked in the seeds were growing so the experience immediately so they're working parallel the experience is going in the brain the brain is responding and the experience is being converted into the brain as this toxic tree so therefore you're experiencing the mind in the brain and as soon as it's built in the brain so it's psycho neuro as soon as it it's in the brain the brain then sends a message to the rest of the body so here's a little model of the body so it's mind psycho neuro brain and then body the brain and body collectively are made of somewhere between 37 and 100 trillion cells now this is where it really becomes quite interesting the brain as soon as it has this built in it it then sends out and this is all very fast by the way this is happening at speeds faster than 10 to 20 the 10 to the 27 which is inconceivably fast we can't even visualize it we we, we only have we don't even have quantum computers that can really even work at that speed yet um, so the 37 to 100 trillion cells, the message goes into every single one of them. So your entire body, every cell in the DNA of every cell, there's a representation, a change in your gene code, specifically epigenetically, that has occurred in every cell. Now, every cell makes up every organ and every organ makes up every system. So your entire body experiences it. So there's the locking in the locker, which is the actual experience. There's your mind processing it. As it hits brain, it builds this, and as it's this built in brain body, it gets stored in body. So you've got it in the grav. You've got a little gravi- a very erratic gravitational field throughout the mind zone, which is all around your body, so that all the field would have been disrupted. You've got a toxic protein, chemical, vibrational structure inside the brain that the immune system of the brain is recognizing is a threat to your survival, is a threat to your homeostasis, your balance, et cetera, et cetera. So everything in your body has gone on high alert. And then your brain has sent this message to the body. So that is why you get that complete reaction from the, the gut brain, the nausea, the telomeres. I mean, every single system, you'll get 14, literally, it's around about 1,400 neurophysiological responses in response to the to the actual experience. So mind, brain, body, the psychoneurobiological response is about 
1,400 different responses. And those all happen fast. And then there's the response of that jolt of fear, that tingling through your body, that almost like a shockwave will go through your body, um, the adrenaline rush, the, the, the adrenaline, the, the hormonal reaction, the extreme contraction within your gut, which is the nausea reaction, all of that. And that experience that you physically have is now being stored into this into this body and now you've got this and now you get out 90 seconds or two minutes later but because of the powerful nature of the adverse circumstance of the trauma and trauma comes in varying degrees and this this was obviously extremely traumatic um this the the power that was invested that had like super fast fuel i, I don't even you know, it's like a like an injection of the most phenomenal versus a smaller trauma like maybe just an irritation with a spouse or something which is also a trauma but it's a smaller injection of fuel i have um, those this, too <laughs> <laughs> exactly we all do i mean we all, yeah. that's why i call up cleaning up the mental mess so that makes it for a very that makes it very very strong and impactful and if we don't process that this thing becomes established and then anything similar in your environment that triggers that same physiological response here's the thing you can be in an environment there's a trigger and immediately you're going to get body to brain to mind and then it kind of whooshes together so it seems like our body brain mind goes backwards as we are triggered so the experience seems to trigger but it's, it's actually parallel but we feel it very quickly in our body that's why when we get a fright we get that almost like a shock through our system so you could be in a triggered situation then the body whooshes then the brain is activated so the data comes back the emotions come back then you start interpreting with your mind and it can be completely unrelated. It could be, as you said, a psychological feeling like someone's in a meeting is pushing you in a corner and you feel cornered. And exactly. so it's created a psychological yeah. box. Yeah. And that can trigger it. And then that whole exactly, same yeah. feeling. Yeah. Exactly. So the only way to deal with that is, is to recognize it's happened to you. You can't change what's happened to you, but you can change what's in you. So you can reconstruct, you've got to deconstruct this. You've literally got to break it down and reconstruct it into something that's manageable. And so this, that the changes from having all this toxic, this is brain damaging. This causes damage. This is like the COVID virus, literally COVID virus, we know is proteins um, and other things too, but the proteins stimulate the immune response. A toxic trauma is, is as damaging and people don't realize that it's actually going to create the same, it's same kind of immune response in the brain. Your brain wants to get rid of this because it threatens your psychoneurobiology, which is wired for survival which is love, optimism, bias, whatever you want to call it. I often call it wired for love. So we want to, we naturally want to fight that. So we have to deconstruct and reconstruct. And that in, its, in itself as well will create a trauma response, which is a general response. This thing, this thing then is how you show up and it should be show up in a trauma response. So with a trigger, we'll have a trauma response, which may be flight, fright, freeze, or fawn. There are six, but those are the four main ones. And those are a collective response that you can and use, um, which kind of signals to you that, okay, I'm in a trauma response what is it where is it coming from so we have to become that and that's mind management if we don't do that we just keep reinforcing the trauma response and the trigger and this thing grows and eventually translates into more areas in our life than we would like it to translate into even and it becomes more and more and more pervasive so it's really an insidiously pervasive that's why it's very important we deal with traumas yeah, absolutely. And it, it feels almost as if that there's a kind of a neural tug of war happening between your Good way saying it. Your prefrontal cortex or your hippocampus or the parts of your brain that are tend to be more rationally focused or tend to lean into discernment or reason and other parts of your brain that are 
biochemically disposed to fear or emotion, emotional can, can salience. I, do yeah. you mind if I interrupt you there? Do Please, you mind if yeah, I just yeah, yeah. I want I want to explain that a little bit differently, as opposed yeah. to taking a structure of your brain, and this is where we've become very neuroreductionistic in our explanations over the last yeah. forty years. It's better to look at this thing holistically. Your amygdala can't do anything on its own, nor can your hippocampus. They don't work in isolation. All they are is specialized for functionality. So what we have is this this brain of ours that has different structures that work together as a coherent system. With each part is a seems to respond to different functionality. So the amygdala, for example, is like a library. And a library has books, and books have data and emotions and things that stimulate us. And you can have books that are telling a story that's good, and you can have books that are telling a story that's very scary. And um, essentially, when we have ex toxic experiences, we build that perceptual library into the amygdala, which changes the shape of the amygdala because we're putting stuff in there that is then linked to these, which are actually in the outer cortex. So we have these in the outer cortex, but they have like a, a, a sort of connection into the amygdala, neuro, a neural connection and a quantum connection. And so when these are triggered, it's almost as though you're going into a library and you're opening a book and you're reading the story. So the amygdala then responds, but in order to recall that the hippocampus was activated along the way, the thalamus, et cetera, et cetera. And in addition, we have 200 specialized across the top of our across our brain and those 200 specializations allow for the uniqueness of how you perceive life Jeff versus how I perceive life which is why you can do something I can't do and why we need each other that no one's got at all that's why you know our specializations are spread across humanities to make us reliant on each other and not in isolation so those get affected too so we must rather look at um, a, a, a response not as the reptilian brain and and the Yes, when we are more insightful, when we do self-regulate, when we do stand back and observe our own thinking, which is a huge part of what I teach, we will see more blood flow in the front of the brain and more oxygen. We will see more coherence. We will see a very nice balance of gamma, alpha, beta, delta. There's a whole pattern that we see emerging. But that's come from the mind driving that. You make the decision, okay, there's this trauma in my life. It's triggering me. It's starting to become very um invasive of my lifestyle so this thing I'm aware of now is actually causing quite a few problems and it seems to be getting worse that's a mind action that has activated the front part of the brain and as you so then what you do with that is you 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 use your whole mind, which then uses your whole brain in different ways to then find this neural pathway um, that has been constructed in the thought tree, and you then deconstruct that. So this thing, if it's not uh, if it's not deconstructed, becomes stronger and stronger. So think of this being in a forest and think of a forest of trees and think of trees that have just been planted that are small and think of trees that have been there for a long time that are big and have a very established root system. The longer they've been there, the more established the root system. So when they, so that is a neural network that becomes very dr a driving force. Yeah. And so as opposed to being the reptilian brain, which is how it's explained, I don't agree with that at all. What happens is that it's actually a pathway that has a lot of energy in the non-conscious mind, a lot of fuel, and it has a lot of it's stronger. You can see it's actually much stronger and um, has a different kind of structure chemically, um, protein-wise, et cetera, in the brain, and it becomes very dominant. So we see life through that, like I'm looking through it, and that then activates these responses that we see. But that's not our future. That is That can be changed, which is very hopeful. Yeah, and I want to get into that. Um, but first, I want to just underscore how important it is to be committed to changing it because Absolutely. that if, if trauma leads to stress and, and, and toxic thinking, 
well, we are now obviously beginning to realize that chronic stress subsequently leads to a panoply of, of oh, negative unreal. outcomes, mm-hmm. disease, and, and reduced immunity. And I, could, I wonder if you could just um, help us build that bridge a little bit Absolutely. between stress and, and some of the, the more deleterious impacts in the body um, uh, of stress. Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you brought that question up. And as you know, I do address that. Um, I do address it quite simplistically in the book. Yeah. And I've done direct research on it. So I've worked with this. There's, 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 first of all, let me say this is a very established field where the, the link between mind and brain stress and the impact on the brain and the body has been established for a long time. But it's only really entering into real medical practice sort of, of, of recent days. And it's the wellness movement that has really, I think, brought it into awareness. So it's kind of been, yes, we know that the mind affects the brain and the body and yes we know there's illnesses but it's sort of been research out there now we it's much more blended and I've, this is this is the world i'm moving the impact of mind brain on body and how we can change that but you see your impact immediately so i'll just take a couple of examples we make about a million cells every second and those cells then make up our organs and our systems and so we constantly over time are turning over our body organs and that's just how it, how it works which is a fantastically efficient system but the, uh, that is, only happens if you're alive. So it's very much mind-driven. It's aliveness-driven. And how you are living your life, your lifestyle is going to be, have a massive impact on how the cells turn over. So if we are um, dealing with a lot of trauma and we're not managing it and we're kind of just in this mental fatigue state and feeling completely overwhelmed and everything just hits us and we, we've created these, these are very predictive, predictive negative patterns that we start operating from. We, we just feel like life, if, if that's sort of the life that you're kind of falling into and then in between there's a few happy moments that sort of keep you going. And this is very, very common and it's not anything for anyone to feel guilty about. It's just unfortunate that we're not dealing with it well enough. That I would call a mental mess and that I would call something that is an unmanaged mind. And people in the last 40 years, we have not discussed enough about managing that process. And yeah. so essentially, if I don't manage that process, what we will see is things, like we have certain biomarkers that are pretty established. So for example, everyone knows about cortisol. What we see is a strong marker of not managing stress is increased levels of cortisol, but not only increased levels of cortisol, decreased levels of DHEA. So for example, cortisol works very closely with DHEA. Everything works together. So I'm pulling out isolated, but please, they work within a system. So when cortisol rises, DHEA drops, and that's really not a good thing. What we want is a good balance of both. And so we see when people are unmanaging, in a living in an unmanaged state, um, we see this happening, this, this differentiation. Now, when that happens, immediately your cardiovascular system is at risk. Those, uh, your, your neurological system is at risk. Your immune system, pretty much every system of your body becomes at risk because that sends a message to every system of your body that there's something that's not quite right. It throws off the balance of the entire body. Another biomarker is homocysteine, which is a very clear marker of inflammation in the brain and the body. And mm. so that generally rises. When we have increased levels of homocysteine, it's also indicative of potential cardiovascular heart problems, autoimmune, etc. Then another very interesting area, which is an area that I'm getting into, and I did, so I did some research in it in my most recent clinical trial is telomeres and telomeres are the ends of chromosomes and there's been quite a bit of research looking at dietary dietary impact on telomeres we make the million cells as i mentioned million plus cells every second the ability to make cells one of the main factors behind it is telomere telomeres which are the ends of chromosomes so if you think of a strand of dna pull out a chromosome it looks like an x the telomere would be my fingernail 
And telomeres are very dependent on an enzyme called telomerase. And those, basically the telomere with the telomerase work to help with cell turnover, to make new cells. And what we're seeing is that telomeres are um, becoming a proxy for how people are managing lifestyle. So it's not just diet and exercise, but also stress. So the work I did was specifically related to stress. I didn't look at diet and exercise. I specifically wanted to do isolate out mind management and how people are managing like trauma and just daily stresses how do they deal with like an argument and whatever and um, so we in in our clinical trial we took people we had obviously it was a random control we had an experimental control group it was double blind all the gold standard even then no research is is perfect but we did put in as many standards in as place as we could and what we essentially saw was that when people were not managing their stress. Like at the beginning of the study, we had people coming in the study, their narrative was their life's a mess. They they feel they they the one person identified as depression. I put that case study in the book. Um, they said, I am depression. Now you can't be depression because depression's not an it. Depression yeah. is a is an emotional warning signal. It's not even it's not a mental illness either. It's an emotional warning signal that something's going on and and it's messing up your brain and your body. But you need to do so okay. So we saw that this person, the telomeres, for example, were not great at all at the beginning of the study. And as they as they the his homocysteine was high, so they had inflammation they had very poor dha cortisol ratio the narrative was one of my life's a disaster xyz lots of details there but they kept on saying it was a description at the, at the beginning of the study their description was i can't sleep i can't eat properly i can't form relationships i can't i can't i can't just all the negative and i'm unhappy and i hate life and that kind of thinking once you, and then all the biomarks were bad, their telomeres were very short and weak. So if you thought, if you look at, if my fingernails are long and pink and healthy, but if they were short and broken and raggedy, I wouldn't have healthy fingernails. This person didn't have healthy telomeres. They didn't have healthy fingernails. And that means that their cell turnover was not healthy. So if you look at that in terms of biological age or the health of your body, because um, that's how we can see what that means, is this particular person's biological age was much older than their chronological age. So they were in their 30s and the but their biological age was of a sickly 65-year-old. So if you are 30 wow. and your body is of a sickly 65-year-old, you are vulnerable to a lot of issues, and especially with high homocysteine, et cetera. So with mind management, though, within nine weeks, not not just five minutes, but literally daily working nine, within nine weeks, we started seeing um, the biological and chronological age matching and we started seeing the homocysteine come down and DHEA cortisol ratios and the narrative change. There was a complete change, whereas in the experimental, I mean, the control group that got no mind management, they got worse. They literally got, in every aspect, they just got worse and worse. So though if your if your telomeres are off your homocysteine's up your cortisol your ACTH all these different biomarkers that we pick up when we when we test someone who's under extreme stress if those are getting worse you are getting more and more vulnerable to disease. So it's not a situation of, okay, I'm having a bad day, I'm going to get cancer. It's not like that. It's cumulative. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a vulnerability that builds, it aggregates. So if you consistently for years are in a state like that, eventually you are going to land up getting something that could kill you younger than what you are should be. And we see we in a very unique time of besides the pandemic, even before the pandemic hit, and I talk about this in my book, the population studies have shown that between 1996 and 2014, the death rate that had been reversed for years was actually getting worse. So yeah. people are dying younger. Yeah. from lifestyle issues which is crazy in this advanced technological wellness you can age where we can get access to anything to help us heal we people are actually dying younger 
you know, and so that's that's an interesting thing. So yes, it's a direct correlation. But the fortunate thing is, is as I, that's why through in about within nine weeks, we started seeing massive change. How we manage our mind and how we manage our lifestyle is we are able to then reverse the process. And to what extent it's up to it's unique for each person, but it can be done. Yeah. Well, just in my own, as a product of my own direct experience, I know when my mind is not managed, when I'm feeling chronically stressed, I suffer from insomnia. <laughs> and uh, and then I wake up the next day or don't ever go to sleep. So I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm up. And then my ability to conduct physical activity, of course, is decreased. Exactly. And then, of course, then, you know, uh, I might resort to some form of comfort food, so that my nutrition and my diet suffer. It just becomes and, and it becomes yeah this snowballs uh, snowballing <laughs> effect. And you know, I was reading statistics about how much chronic disease can be ascribed to stress, and it, I mean it's it's alarming it's as an understatement. Um, alarming, ninety five percent, yeah, yeah. And then in this moment when we're um, justifiably, you know, concerned with infectious disease and respiratory disease and mm-hmm, COVID, mm-hmm, the, um, the, what stress hormones are doing to our immune systems. It's just um, shocking. Yeah. And so, um, so this is just um, something that fortunately, um, through the work that you're doing, we have a lot more control over it than we think that we do or that we're exactly. led to believe often um, that we do. Um, and I suppose it's not just stress. The stress seems to be sort of at the top of the heap. But, you know, if we look at other form, other mental conditions like uh, just distraction or yeah, yeah. De- I'm just Brain the ability you know, to focus um, day to day and engage in long wave thinking to have long conversations like this one or to think through complex problems without getting pinged yeah. and dinged and, you know, um, yeah. with notifications every two seconds, but also just the prevalence of, of depression um, and, and chronic anxiety. And I wonder in your opinion, to what degree are many of these conditions simply uh, a reflection of innately of being human or are they genetic or are they specifically environmental to this time? I mean, what are the root causes of what is seemingly this epidemic behind (laughs) this other epidemic that we're experiencing? You're asking yeah. one of my favorite questions, and it's such an important question. So thank you for asking that. So essentially, we have to look at the fact that it's not about us. It's about us in the world. So we've got to look at the first cause. It's in our environment. So whatever's going on in our environment is going to be affecting how we function. And so something like depression and anxiety, as I already briefly mentioned, is not a brain disease. You don't have a disease in your brain if you're feeling depressed. You're having a normal human response. So instead of looking at anxiety and depression and the fact that anxiety is tripled in the pandemic as, oh gosh, that means that we've got tripled the amount of 
mental health or mental illness. It's such a scary way of looking at it. Rather throw that narrative out the door. It's not even scientific. It's not accurate. It takes away hope and it creates an immune system issue because fear, it becomes very fear driven. And when you are under a lot of fear, then, you know, you're building a whole thing about, oh my gosh, I've got depression on top of this. Now I've got another thing, you know, so there's another toxic thought on the top. It's not, it's not helping anyone. What we need to recognize is, hey, we are humans responding in a very normal way to a very adverse circumstance on top of everything else that we have to deal with in our life anyway, which there's a lot of adversity in everyone's lives anyway. And some people more than others, and there's different degrees and at different stages of our life, we go through different things. So there's life, which is filled with trauma. And that's why we really need to be trauma informed. And it's adverse circumstances that lead to these traumas, big, small, different degrees, etc. And then there's big stuff that happen on top that affect us globally like the pandemic. So we are all having very normal responses to very adverse circumstances. And to label and to tell someone that, hey, you've got a mental disease, it's going to make it worse. What we need to recognize is that this is normal. So what is it? The depression I'm feeling, not a brain disease, it's a signal. It's t- it's a messenger. It's telling me, okay, I'm feeling depressed. That's okay. That's normal. That's not who I am. It's how I'm showing up because of the pandemic, because of the isolation, the financial demand, the grief, the the sickness, the all that. Even COVID brain. I've done podcasts on this. Yes, the pathway that the that the little mini strokes that COVID causes and the little pathways that it seems to affect is seems to be the same pathway that is the thought processing pathway. But we know about neuroplasticity. We know about the fact that if we if we don't scare people and say oh there's a mental health pandemic there's mental illness pandemic which that's what we say hey listen okay this is this is the issue we've, we've got this problem let's now look at ways that we can rebuild our brain and rebuild our community how can we help each other super interesting study was done that in in over this pandemic where they they saw the de- depression in the elderly and your 18 to 25 year olds both everyone's battle but they took those two age groups and they compared and the elderly both were suffering from depression increased depression but depression is not an illness it's a signal so what was the signal telling them okay the elderly the signal was well we isolated we don't aren't so great with technology so we can't just jump we don't know how to jump on and use whatsapp and use you know instagram and and they're not technologically savant so there's whereas your younger generation that's they are just the technical generation. So yeah. They, yeah. So they. So in other words, they were able to deal with the isolation more effectively. But so their depression was different to their depression came from. Oh my gosh, my life's over. What future is there? You know, an eighteen-year-old's going into university. I can't go to university. A twenty-four-year-old's or twenty-two-year-old's finishing university and starting a career. I can't get a job. I've got to live at home. You know, I, I can't go out with my very important eighteen to twenty-four is to get out there and to to. Um, be building the brain through the socialization aspect physically and that's been removed so they're having to do it technologically which is not the best it's not going to be quite the same and the elderly in other words what you what do we what would we do we take the older generation their depression was managed more effectively because even though they were more isolated they've got more context context plays a massive role they've got years of other oh we got through that well this too shall pass that kind of thinking so if we bring the two age groups together if we if we use our logic and all our technology we can create 
and I've spoken about this so often, but we can create uh, platforms. We can create platforms across every strata, libraries, um, different different levels, schools, libraries, communities, where we can bring the different generations together. The younger generation can teach the older generation the technological skills and the older can teach about context. So when we share our conversations, when we talk, when we express, we say, I'm so depressed because of this. And I tell you my story. I'm getting it out. That person's got their story. They listen. They empathize. They tell their story. I'm not the only one. How can we put our heads together and solve? How can I help you? How can you help me? Oh, I can do this. I could do that. I can't. And that's what's not happening. What we yeah. have is a bunch of oh, anxiety is increased and this is doing this in your brain. I can tell you all about that. It's, yes, it is. But it's a reaction. It's not a disease. And if we manage it, we can we can reverse the process. We're in such a beautifully unique time where we can learn to operate as, a, as proper communities, which is what we are designed for, deep, meaningful communities. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up community and particularly the... Uh the multi-generational nature of the community that you were yeah. env- envisioning. Um, and that's so rare these days. Um, I just spent, you know, a couple of weeks um, in a family multi-generational uh, context on, on a camping trip. Um, and just to watch that interaction between the digital natives, for example, and, yeah. uh, and the grandparents, yeah. you know, who, who would take the kids and actually read from a proper analog book, book you know. <laughs> it and, actually uh, feels, it's actually paper. You can actually open it and read the words and touch the page. <laughs> and just having the time to decompress and that, and my kids realizing, wow, you know, grandma does have a lot of experience and I can actually really learn from her instead of, you know, kind of the natural modern proclivity just to sort of, well, write them off as a burden yeah, or something like exactly. that. And and then, of course, it's working the other way around, too. And so I, I love that multi-generational um, vision. And it seems very helpful in unveiling this uh, sort of the, the doctrine of mutual interdependence <laughs> that yes. you know, we can't really exist without each other. No, we can't. And, um, and that is, I think, one of the uh, one of the very thorny c- components of our time because, you know, we seem to be increasingly isolated is and a- mm. atomized. And, yeah, of course, we sanctify the individual yeah. um, in the West particularly, and our systems and structures seem to um, to value uh, individualism over collective good. Which is so unfortunate, yeah. Yeah, when I mean, this is a whole other topic. It is. But, and, but, but it's it connect, is. Not, not disconnected, though, obviously, um, because uh, so much of our mental wellness is incumbent upon our ability to, to connect. And exactly. clearly, we've become quite adept at intimacy over Zoom. <laughs> We're doing a pretty good yeah, job. Yeah, we've adapted. Right we adapt now. beautifully. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly, w- w- I think you know, oftentimes when we really lean into the collective, Mm. we actually come to the realization that the collective good and the individual good are one in the same thing. Uh, Oh, absolutely. And that's where neuroscience is beautiful because neuroscience, if it's used correctly in the collective consciousness, collectiveness versus individual um, community versus individualism, you're going to see that the brain is enhanced and because the mind is enhanced. So like I mentioned earlier on, we have 200 specializations and yours are different to mine. So that means that if I enhance you, I'm actually enhancing my own brain health. But if I get jealous of you or I cut you off and I see you as someone that I've got to compete 
with, I'm actually giving myself brain damage because there's something you can do that I can't. So if we can, and that's what the individualistic society has done. And there's a super interesting study where they showed that people that have this I, myself, the more times you say, there's a few of them, but the one of them that's super interesting um, is that if the more times you say I, me, myself, and I, the more you increase your chance of cardiovascular issues within the 12, in the next 12 months, like a 42% increase in your chance of having some kind of heart issue in the next 12, in the next 12 months. That's insane. So we just wow. not, we're not neurobiologically, our psychoneurobiology is not geared for the individual to compete. It's geared for the individual to enhance. And, you know, that's, that's where I believe our mental health is going to come from enhancement, not this diagnosis drug and isolate and separate. Yeah, well, they give credence to this notion that that the Buddha was truly our first psychologist because the, the primary message that he's positing is is a that we're mutually interdependent exactly. and and b that freedom from samsara is the re- realization of the non-self. So exactly, yeah, exactly. Anyway. And Christopher Fuchs yeah. says that in a different way. Christopher Fuchs is a quantum physicist and he says the exact same thing, but in a quantum physics way, That's it's right. not about you. It's about you in the world. Yes, you know, and it's yes. it's just so beautiful. I mean, it is. It's about you in the world, and that's why you can never separate. Which comes full circle back to your question: you can never separate the person from the environment. You know, and the right. chronic stresses of the environment. I mean, there's a lot of studies showing that in with racism, when people are in um, a constant chronic stress state from racism, that their hypertension increases, so their risk of stroke increases, and it's massively increased in populations where racism exists as a chronic state. So the, the, we cannot get away from it. We have to look at societally at, at the environments we're creating yeah yeah we do well let's get on to some good news is that um is that through mind management we can address many of these issues and i would say just as a preamble to getting in to the neurocycle um i think it would be important to for you to just um Explain the nature of neuroplasticity and, and actually what it is and the process by which the brain actually can develop new neural networks. So neuroplasticity um, is something that I studied right back in the 80s when I was challenged by one of my professors who gave us this lecture about how your brain can't change. And I said, I just cannot believe that because it, in the 80s, mind and brain were seen as separate. It's the last 40 years that they've been seen as one. Um, but but now we believe the brain can change, but the thinking is the brain changes itself. The brain, take a dead brain, it can't change itself. So something's changing the brain, and that's the human's experience, that being alive. So I, when, when, I, when I heard that lecture, I remember saying, hey, this is not, and I've done a t- TEDx talk on this, This is the ridic- they said it's a ridiculous question. The mind can't change the brain, but it can. And so I worked with traumatic brain injured people and people with dementias and so on and started doing, in, in t- specifically traumatic brain injury was where I started because if you it was basically I was trained that when someone was traumatically brain injured that's it just teach them to compensate and there was hardly any research in the 80s on that so I did some of the first research there and it was very exciting because I was like hey hang on our mind is what's driving this if we can get our mind working in a more intentional and deliberate way we can actually change how a person's functioning on a cognitive social emotional and functional level and I basically showed that with my research I developed a theory I developed a system for how and so this is not a technique it's a system and it's based on very solid scientific research and I developed this theory and it's had 38 years of development and I will continue to develop this for the rest of my life because I'll continue doing research scientifically as I said in the beginning science is never 
complete. Um, no, no one's story is ever complete. We're always writing a new story. So, so what I've tried to do over these 38 years is look at what is mind and how can we direct our mind to direct the neuroplasticity of the brain? Because I saw very clearly with my traumatically brain injured patients that when you take someone who's been written off as a vegetable, literally, and who was functioning at a very high, a fairly high level before an accident and then ended up functioning at literally at like where the doctors had written them off as a vegetable, where the parents didn't give up. And by the time they came to me as a patient, they were a 16 and a half, almost 17, but they were functioning on about a six, five, six-year-old level. And that was even a miracle because the doctors had said that they wouldn't even get to that level. That within eight months, that particular subject in one of my studies, who was a patient and became a subject of a study, ended up within eight months passing 12th grade with a peer group. So they caught up what they had missed and they'd missed like almost two years of school at that point with wow. severe brain damage, two weeks of being in a coma. I mean, this is unheard of. It's even this day and age, if you're in a coma for two weeks, you'll predict the predictions are not going to be great from the neurologists and neurosurgeons and so on. And I've seen this one so many times. I, I can tell you thousands of stories of people that have, that I've worked with, with extreme trauma, dementias, people with the most horrific, I worked in Rwanda after the genocide. I I worked in just a few years after the genocide. I worked in South Africa after the trauma of the apartheid system for 25 years. I worked in the most dangerous places of South Africa. If you went there as a white woman, you were raped or murdered. I worked there for 25 years. No one touched me. I could drive alone. I was pregnant four times driving in those areas. No one touched me because they knew I was bringing a message of hope. And I'm, I mean, our country messed up people because of the terrible system. It was racism in its worst form. But uh, as the resilience that I saw, when you go and teach people hope. So I say all that to say that what the five-step neurocycle isn't just some quick fix, whatever. It's grown out of years of laborious research and theory and working with humans in real life context, not in labs with rats and, you know, taking humans into false situations that I went into life and try to say, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this thing called life and how do we cope with terrible stuff? And can we change and can we direct it? And without doubt, every single research study I did, every single experience I had was that when you direct your mind, you can change the brain. And neuroplasticity is this ability of the brain to change. Neuroplasticity is a reality every moment of every day. Right now, your brain is totally different to what it was when we began this discussion, and it won't stop changing because you keep experiencing life. So that the ability of the brain to change is neuroplasticity, but it's not emergent. It's not self-emergent. And what that means is that a dead brain can't change. It's an alive brain that's changing because of what the live person is experiencing. So having said that, if I'm an alive person and I'm experiencing life, can I control that? Can I direct that? In other words, then can I direct what's going on in my brain? And yes, you can. That's what the research has shown. So in my most recent research, I showed that we can get a handle on um, things like anxiety and depression by a factor of 81%. And what that essentially means is that we can through recognizing things like depression and anxiety um, come from some sort of traumatic adverse circumstance, a story that's gone on with you in your life or a series of adverse circumstances. If we can recognize that that's not who I am, that's what I've become because of, and if we can find the because of, and if we can then reconceptualize and redirect and rebuild, we can then get a handle on getting a level of peace. It doesn't mean that you're never going to have depression or anxiety. You don't want to not have them. They are actually very useful messengers. Anxiety and depression keep us on track. They keep us recognizing, oops, that was a bit of a mess. Let me fix and repair. So they're, they're like little alarms going off. Okay, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're frustrated, if you're irritated, if there's a behavior that's that's like abnormal in your life that you didn't used to have, if you're feeling life sucks, if 
you, your body's giving you a lot of, those are all amazing messengers. They're not things to be frightened of. They're things to be aware of. Read them, tune into them, and then do something about them. See the doctors for the physical symptoms. Do the mind work to get the, to find the source as, as you deal with the physical impact, because there is a physical impact as you already discussed with the telomeres and, you know, cardiovascular risk, et cetera. I mean, as soon as you have a toxic issue that's undealt with, the immune system of your brain sends out B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes to go and fix this thing up. And if you don't get rid of it, you get an autoimmune response. And that then creates a downstream effect through your whole neurophysiology, increasing your vulnerability to disease by 35 to 98% over time. You know, so these are realities. So the neurocycle was birthed out of that. And I saw in my early days, I saw a 35 to 75% improvement, which was, I mean, significant improvement. These are huge huge percentages and in my most recent research 81 percent. i mean these are huge and i didn't even address diet and exercise even though i do in my general teaching of everything in i i always control my variables as much as i can and i, and I just work with mind if they change their diet i that's not something i control for i control for mind and when you teach someone hey this is a thought this is a the thoughts made of memories this is the mind this is the brain this is the system for how you can actually direct this then you see changes and that's what the neurocycle is it's come out of 38 years of this kind of research to find a system not it's not a technique it's not a quick fix it's not a five steps and now you're an instant millionaire or instantly depression free it is a laborious hard work mind work that you have to do daily for around 15 to 45 minutes over cycles of 63 days to create the changes that are needed in the neural networks and the mind to which will then produce the behavioral changes so if you think of a simple example people go on diets all the time and they're pretty much 99 percent unsuccessful and most diets are behaviorally driven they try and change people's behaviors behavior change is never going to help until you've changed the reason why you have the behavior in the first place so the neurocycle looks at the behavior as being a very helpful messenger what is my behavior what are my emotions there's four signals that you've been need to look at and when we look at those four signals we can then track back to find the thought behind it which is this thing and then from there once you've got that then you can de- Reconstruct it, break it down and reconstruct it. You can't change that it's happened, like you were locked in that that locker. It happened. But you can change how it plays out into your future. It can make you sad. There's nothing wrong with feeling sad about that. It was a terrible thing that happened to you. But it doesn't, you can get control over that. You can shift the power balance. And that's what you want. These things unmanaged control you. They become these neural networks that become drivers and they get too much energy and they override the good stuff and our wisdom which is our innate wired full of nature and you don't want that so that's why we need to be in a constant lifestyle of mind management which involves self-regulation so that's kind of the intro to the concept Mm. beautiful and i mean for me a lot of um sort of recurring stress that has a lot of these uh, um, downstream impacts are the stories that I'm telling myself about myself that seem to inform the sense of of, of a stable identity that I have. Um, When really, upon further examination, I I know that that's quite bogus. (laughs) Um, And these are just stories. Yeah. yeah. But 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 they drive you. But they drive. Yeah. Yeah. so there's exactly. the story. There's the story. Mm-hmm. And while that thing's got power, you can, you, we always have our, we have a disability. You've just described something very powerful about the human nature. It's called the multiple perspective advantage. You can stand back now and tell me, I tell myself stories. So here's your wisdom, the green tree, standing mm-hmm. back and observing your story and knowing that that story is bogus, as you use that word, I like that word. 
but yeah. still it's driving you. So until you've actually stood back and done the work over 63 days and maybe multiple cycles, I mean, I've had some patients that have taken two years to up to two years to, to deal with a very, very extensive, very long ingrained trauma. Um, but the ability to stand back and observe and change that is, is what we have to do. So as long as this is there, you can, this is, this is the story. This is that story that, that I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. And until you have taken that away, this power away by finding this and uprooting this, like you up, you know, when you weed in a garden, you have to get the whole root out. You can't just chop mm. the head off. So you just apply CBT technique, for example, um, or you just talk it through. You, you're not going to, you have to reconstruct it. We can't just chop the as a technique just chops the head off, it will grow back. Talking it through will get you there, but you now have to reconstruct. So we've got to prepare our brain, which is all the meditation, all that kind of thing. We've got to gather awareness of it, which but and then we've got to actually track all the way through what am I what is my story I'm telling myself? Why? Did I get there? And okay, that's not, let me take the energy from that and let me now reconstruct. What should it be? What do I want it to be? How do I want my future to play? How do I want this to not control me anymore? And that takes a lot of time. And, yeah. and people will say, hey, I don't have 63 days. Well, here's my argument, because I know that you're probably going to ask that. Your mind's working anyway. So whether you so you either you either keep reinforcing this over sixty three days because if you're not changing it you're reinforcing it so you're doing it anyway or you take the time to actually find this and change it you know yeah. so the, it is it, and it gets worse before it gets better it's just the nature of you know once you find out why you did once you find out something that you know you get to these gory details it's really traumatic but then you you, you get over it that's how you get control you you got to feel it to heal it I mean I know that's so cheesy but it really is true. Yeah, I, I, so I'm, I was going to ask you, in that gathering phase, um, or step, if you will, and I guess just as a, a kind of general summation, what I understand is that there's three primary principles to the system, and, and then five more explicit steps. Um, so, well, I'll, let me yield the floor, actually, because before I actually try to tell you what step one is. No, not a problem. I can, I can no problem. The, in terms of managing this, the actual concept. So what we've got to do is we first got to prepare the brain and the body. That's really important. So it's kind of phased. So you prepare the brain and the body, then you do the five steps in in two phases, and then you you get and that way you're going to deconstruct and reconstruct, re, deconstruct and reconstruct. So the three principles are embrace, process, and reconceptualize. So you can't you can't. The word embrace, it means if I embrace you, I'm going to take you in my arms. It's a welcoming. So in other words, I'm shifting the mindset. Instead of seeing depression and anxiety as these awful, scary things that are killing you and they're brain diseases and you're crazy, no, 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 throw that out the door and say, oh, I'm amazing. My identity, my core identity is wired for love. I'm absolutely brilliant. I can do something that no one else can do, whatever word you need, and it's all science. And I've got lots of podcasts and books to help you find that wording. And then you say, okay, but I'm showing up with excessive depression, excessive panic attacks, um, more so emotion signals. Okay, so what are they? First of all, there's emotional signals, excessive depression, um, maybe panic attacks, maybe incredibly frustrated. So let's just take those three. Then what are your behaviors? What are you doing? More withdrawn, more irritable, more snappy, um, just 
not wanting to do much. Um, what are your what is your what is going on in your body? A lot of heart palpitations, GI symptoms, um, autoimmune <laughs> responses flaring up, maybe skin rashes, whatever. And then the what is your general perspective when you think about this? What's your general perspective of life? I'm tired. I'm worn out. I can't care. Whatever. So you, those are your four basic signals. Those signals are coming from this tree. Instead of seeing those as oh my life's falling apart. I'm part of a pandemic. I need to go and get a diagnosis and a pill. Put that aside and say, you are being human. It's okay. This is totally normal. Let's gather awareness of those signals within this kindness of being kind to ourselves. So you've got those signals. Now, before you dive in and start taking those signals down to the core root, you now want to prepare your brain and your body. Because just being aware of those signals is going to raise your heart rate and you know make you feel like, oh, I can't do this. It's too hard. And that's where things like breathing and meditation and havening and all kinds of stuff comes in. So I have in the book, in the second half, as you have seen I explain in depth what the five steps are and I give lots of examples of, of everything I'm saying and then I have an app called the NeuroCycle app which um, I don't know if you're familiar with where I literally walk you through the processes that I'm giving you therapy so you gather you you, you tune into the signals this is not even the, the gather awareness yet you to tune into the signals so stop stand back tune into the signals with kindness to yourself prepare your brain through three minutes of breathing whatever you like meditation a state there i give lots of examples some people can't handle the breathing and meditation don't do that find something that calms you down and i give lots of examples um, and then you start the five steps and it's very limited you limit it to 15 to 45 minutes a day when you're dealing with traumas and things because it's very overwhelming you don't want to do this all day long you'll get totally drained of energy Energy, like you, all the apps open on your phone. Eventually, your phone goes flat halfway through the day. You, you've got yeah. to limit the time when you work like this. This is hard work. So you give yourself fifteen to forty-five minutes, and you work through the five steps. You set yourself up in the way that I've just described, and then you work through the five steps. The first step is to gather awareness. The second step is to reflect. The third step is to write. The fourth step is to write. The fifth step is an action, an active reach. Gathering awareness is basically now I've prepared the brain and I've tuned into the signals. Okay, what are those signals telling me? So I land my literally land my plane and I'm looking at this at this thing and I would get my uh, my to this toxic tree I would get my patients to sit in two chairs so you in one chair and that chair is you as well but you know you the two chairs you you and your you so one is in an empty mm -hmm. chair but it's actually you pilot co-pilot however you want to see it and the the co-pilot part of you or the empty chair part of you is the wise mind it's saying it's okay this is the narrative it's the bogus story it's ingrained it's driving you the reason it's driving you is not because you're crazy but because it's just so established we've got to take some energy from this thing we've got to reconstruct it the only way we can get this thing out is to so you're giving yourself that kind of comforting language so then think of having a basket and gathering apples off a tree imagine these apples are all sulfurous and rotten and awful because they're representing all this toxic stuff and you literally are going to gather awareness of those signals you tuned into what are you gathering gather that depression gather that um, anxiety that frustration gather that panic attack gather that whatever you gather on the first day just spend a couple of minutes and imagine don't think yet just i mean don't don't reflect yet don't try and work it out just get them Okay, so it's taking the signals to a little bit of a deeper level. Then you're going to say, okay, now, and it's very systematic. As you do this, you're driving energy waves through the brain. You're forcing oxygen to the front. I'll give you all the things that are happening. If you skip a step, you just don't get the same benefit. Your brain needs to be ordered to direct neuroplasticity. You've got to get this side talking to that side. You've got to get this way of doing this. You've got to get oxygen here. You And so I've worked out the five steps that drive that kind of neurophysiology, which makes it easy, easier for you to, to have the resilience. Then you're going to reflect 
which is a deep analytical ask, answer, discuss. Why am I feeling this depression? You're not going to get the answer on day one, nor on day two. It's going to take you at least three weeks, at least 21 days of reflection to start seeing your narrative and why you have the narrative. So it's a, so, And then the third step and fourth step are writing steps. But the third step I recommend you write in the form of a metacog, which is a system I developed years ago, which is a pattern way of writing that draws the two sides of the brain together and increases your ability of your conscious mind to tap into your wise, non-conscious mind. So it gets the messy mind working with the wise mind, and it really gives you insight. And then it's, it's kind of a step where you'd just put everything on the page. It's very, very, like this was, it's so powerful. When you get into it, it's hard, but it's so powerful. And that's where breakthroughs will happen. And please don't expect a breakthrough on day one. You've got to push through. And in the book, I'd show you, and in the video, in the app, I tell you, hey, day four is hard. Day seven is, is, is a little bit better. Day 14, you, you might be overconfident. I tell you as, as you work through it, how you, you know, what's going to happen. And then the fourth step is where you sort out what you have written in step three. You try to make sense of it, looking for patterns and triggers. And, and antidotes and so on. And then the fifth step is kind of a full stop of the sentence. That's the work you've done today. Let's cap this thing off and let's get a little action statement with an, um, some kind of visualization exercise and that carries you through the day. You go into your day and as you're going through your day, as your, if your mind gets drawn back to this trauma and you feel yourself getting depressed again, just say, okay, this is fine. What was my active reach? So your active reach is your anchor that brings you back. Can you say that active reach out loud or do whatever the visualization is? Like maybe you visualize a beautiful white rose because, I mean, that's what I often do because I love roses. Mm-hmm. And um, I attach it to the statement, uh, whatever it is. And that forces me, like it's conscious and deliberate, and it forces me to go back to that place of peace. And then I can carry on with my day. And then tomorrow I'll work on it again. So tomorrow morning I'll get back or whatever. And so you go through. In phase the first tw- tw- 21 days, you'll find this thing, you'll deconstruct it and reconstruct it into this. But at day 21, more or less, this is tiny. And this thing has become this, you control. So you still remember, you haven't wiped it out, but you've changed it. You've reconstructed it. You've reconceptualized it. And But it's small. It's a tiny little newly planted tree, and it's just going to die if you don't give it water. So for the next phase is for, of 42 days, you do the same five steps, but you just do them really quickly. You do them in like five to seven minutes. So it's a super quick, and you're not really finding more. You're just looking for more insights because at day 21, you've got your new thought. So you literally, that's your final act of reach. So you're next 42 days are taking that and stabilizing and getting more insights and growing it and getting it bigger and bigger by day 63 you will have behavior change and then i explain all of that in the book with the the brain i've got brain maps and all kinds of things to show what happens as you're going through the different stages so that's a a big picture walkthrough yeah thank you so much for doing that and i love how comprehensive uh this system is and it does require real dedication and work. Yeah. Like you say, it's not just, you know, five tips and all of a sudden you're going to be fine at the end of this YouTube video. It exactly. actually requires you to commit to this process, but it has a very hopeful message connected to it that we can modify and change and adapt the structures and functions of our brain Absolutely. in uh, in the in service of our overall well-being. And um and, and also, what I will say in closing is that this system is very protein in nature. Obviously, you can utilize it to address trauma and stress, mm-hmm. but it's also amazing for brain building. Exactly, and, yeah. Um, 
and for also instantiating other habits into your life, like good nutrition habits, yeah. good exercise and movement habits. Got and it. I feel like that's like to be continued because I have like about 45 pages of notes. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, gosh, we'll have to do another part too. Because <laughs> um, I'd love to get into food and to movement and, and to all of that. Which is so exciting. But, um, but I think that this was just an absolute wonderful introduction of all of the just just groundbreaking work that you're doing and that you've done over 30 plus years and i can't Thank wait you. to share it with with our audience and Thank like i so said uh, to, to be continued uh caroline leaf thank, thank you, so, you much. so much thank you Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Caroline Leaf. Follow her work at drleaf.com. And of course, drop me a line anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are so inclined. That's all from The Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.